course, one of the problems with that question is that we could put that question rather differently because we could say, how do we tell or can we tell who will succeed in life? How do we predict success? Do we look to exam results, to someone's sort of class and background, upbringing, to parenting, to level of popularity, success to be measured in terms of financial return? It's not easy. It's not easy, is it? And yet, it turns out there is one fairly accurate predictor of success. It is the Stanford Marshmallow Test. If you're not familiar with the test, a child is, is given a marshmallow and promised that if they can wait it out, they can get two marshmallows at the end of the time. Or if they can't wait, they can just eat the marshmallow there and then. It's a simple test that tests your ability to defer gratification, to exercise self-restraint and self-control, to understand that short-term pain can lead to long-term gain. Interestingly, what the people found was that the people who were successful in this test years later achieved better exam results, higher education levels, lower BMI, and many other health and happiness measurements. Paul continues a contrast that he made in verse 17 of chapter 8 here. In this section, he said, If children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. He makes this contrast between suffering in the present and glory in the future. That those who reach the glorious end of Jesus' return and the new earth endure. And it turns out that marshmallow test may have a thing or two to teach us too. So I want to just bring out three points from these verses here. Firstly, that there's short-term pain and long-term gain. That there's a stacked deck and that we're to know the end from the beginning. There is short-term pain for long-term gain. Or we could put it another way, that there are groanings now, but there's glory to come. Think about the marshmallow test again. The test could be summarized as being, can you endure short-term pain for long-term gain? Can you resist the control of physical and emotional side to allow your rational and analytical side to win? Can you pass up the option of a small treat now for more treats later? To put it in gospel terms, will you let go of a lesser glory from a created thing for the greater glory that comes from Christ? Short-term pain, long-term gain. Look at verse 18. For I consider, the word there is I reckon, I compute, I come to a bottom line decision of, that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing, and the phrase there is about are not of the same order, aren't comparable with the glory to be revealed to us. This is the central truth of verses 18 to 30 that sort of holds this passage together, that there is short-term pain, but long-term gain. We see it in that structure there, that in verses 19 to 21 here, we see a present brokenness, 
And in verses 22 to 23, we see a, a groaning creation and groaning Christians. And then in verses 24 to 25, a future hope that we're pointed to. Firstly, we see that brokenness. Look at verse 19. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And the word there, again, happens many times as it's been translated into English. It doesn't quite do it justice to the original language. In the original language, eager longing, the the word there is literally head outstretched. You think of the sprinter as they come to the line and as there's a photo finish and they want to make sure that they're the one to cross that line first. They stretch the head out and they strain every muscle to be there ahead of that line. Creation waits with head outstretched for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation awaits Jesus' return, the revealing of the people of God, the renewal and restoration of the earth. But why the wait? Why the wait? The answer, I think, is so that more children are found. More sons and daughters of God are brought home. But there's a problem, isn't there? Look at verse 20. The creation was subjected to futility. There's a brokenness that's fallen upon creation. We've spoken about it before in our journey through Romans, so no need to go there again in any depth. But Paul is thinking of this curse that comes in after the fall of humanity in Genesis 3. That's left the earth and everything on it broken and fractured, even the most intimate of relationships. Strained. And we see that and we sense that. We groan for the brokenness that we experience ourselves, but we also groan for just the general brokenness over the earth, the brokenness of unfair and unjust systems. Reverend Dr. Alan Bursak, I hope I'm I'm saying that properly, is a South African theologian and anti-apartheid campaigner, and he writes on this theme. He says, Jesus is the center of our faith, of our longings for justice and of our struggles for justice. So our discontent with the groanings of God's creation and the suffering of God's children, our defiance of the powers of domination that seek to rule God's world, is caught up in our following of Christ. We are discontented because of God's discontent with injustice. We defy the powers because they seek to replace God in our lives. There's a sense of brokenness around us that we can feel, that we can experience But why has that happened? Verse 20 continues that it's not willingly. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Even in this, even in the fall of humanity, even in the brokenness that we see so often in the world, God is sovereign and he is working out his plans. Why does he allow this? How can he be good doing this because he is good he's good enough to give Adam and Eve a great creation with the freedom even freedom to rebel good enough that they didn't have to look elsewhere for what's good but good enough in light of their falling to spend himself to make it good again and to show his goodness by redeeming the brokenness Put much better, much more concisely than I could. Joni Erickson Tarder says, God is determined to steer what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And there's a purpose there in it. 
verse 21. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay. God's salvation here has cosmic dimensions. It's no less than the redemption of the entire universe. It's not just concerned with humans. The creation itself will be set free from bondage to decay. There's short-term pain, but there is long-term gain, an eternity of redemption. See, the gospel is always much more hopeful than the message of the world around us. It recognizes the present brokenness, but it hopes in a glorious, full-scale redemption. And yet, for now, we groan. It's a present brokenness, but uh, secondly here, continues the whole creation has been groaning in pains of childbirth there's a groaning creation groans together I always think that phrase pains of childbirth uh, on the page is so simple and yet in reality if you've been there and know that and experienced that that's it feels like it's sort of not quite doing justice to the level of discomfort that is yet there and yet it's a pain isn't it but it's a productive pain there's a glorious outcome at the end of it the whole creation has been groaning we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly we have this sort of part payment that we have God's spirit with us and yet the frustration of being in a time in which things are both now and not yet, that we see some of God's promises fully fulfilled, we see others partly fulfilled, that we await the full fulfillment of. On his return, we groan inwardly, though having a first fruits, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We await being fully set free from sin, fully set free from failure and the frailties of the body. We groan for now, for paradise lost, for what we only have a part of now, and for what is still to come. And yet we groan for now, but there's glory to come. Look at verse 24. Hope that is seen isn't hope, for who hopes for what he sees? We always hope, I think, for something better than what we have. I don't know if this conversation has ever sort of come up for you in in your workplace, on the playground perhaps, or on campus, or just on the street in which you live. You know, what would you do if you won the lottery? And there's a reality that you always hope for something better than what you have. I don't think that there's many people who think that the first thing that they would do if they won the lottery was to go and buy this car. You hope for something better than what you have, no? You hope for the Ferrari, not the Ford Mondeo. You hope for the fancy LA selling sunset house, not the house you have, as good as it is. You hope for something better. You don't hope to go to Pleasureland in our growth. You hope to go to Disney World, do you not? You hope for something better than what you have. Hope that's seen isn't hope. Who hopes for what he sees? If we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. You know, it's better not to see what you're waiting for while you wait. Come back to that marshmallow test. There's an interesting correlation that those who are successful in the marshmallow test before, uh, who are successful in not eating that marshmallow before the time limit share this thing in common, that they don't spend the time looking 
at the marshmallow. And those who end up eating the marshmallow spend the time looking at the marshmallow. If we hope for what we don't see, we wait with patience. It is always easier to wait with hope for what we don't have yet if you don't have to look at it while you wait to get it. There's short-term pain for long-term gain. But secondly, we're playing with a stacked deck. I wonder whether you'll have ever remember this scene from The Simpsons. This is Bart coming into uh, the gangsters sort of hide out their speakeasy. They're playing cards. And as the camera sort of goes in a bit closer to their game, you see they're playing with a stacked deck. One player there has five aces himself. What we find here is we're playing with a stacked deck. We don't only have a hope to look forward to, but God's spirit is the strength we can rely on to lead us through groaning to glory. The spirit helps us, he tells us in verse 26, in our weakness. And the word there, again, the English doesn't do justice to the full weight of what it's saying. The spirit helps us. The the phrase help there is takes hold of at the side of us. And the closest thing I can think, and I warned you that I would do this, and I'll continue to do this, is crowbar Jim references in. Uh, The closest thing I could think to this is thinking of the role of the spotter. Uh, This is not a picture of me, um, (laughs) simply because you can't take pictures in the gym. Uh, I tried to find someone who was as close a resemblance to me as possible. The likeness is uncanny. Uh, The role of the spotter is really two things. One is to be the perpetual sort of hype man who's constantly sort of motivating the person underneath the strain of the weight that, yeah, you've got this, feel the burn, you're going to be so swole. But then also in the moment of calamity is the person to step in and grab hold of the weight and take it from them when they just simply can't hold it any longer. And invariably, the two characters love to do this as loud as possible so that everybody in the gym knows. Because, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and no one sees it, then did it happen? You know, and if, if a guy really benched sort of 100 pounds and no one's heard him groaning and grunting, then it couldn't have really happened. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. He comes and he spots and he takes the strain of the weight when we can bear it no longer. He comes and he steps in and he holds us up and he holds up the weight for us. What is our weakness? Verse 26 continues, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. There's our problem. We don't know what we should pray for. Don't you know that, like me? That sometimes we pray, but we just don't know what to ask or what to say about it. I can think in the sort of months after my dad passed away that my prayer times really were little more than me just sort of sitting there and saying, well, You know, I'm here, and I'm here because I sort of know that I should be, and I sort of want to, but I don't know what to say beyond this. Uh, You know, you'll sort of have to speak instead, because I I, I don't know what I'm to ask. Sometimes we know that. We don't know what to ask for. And yet sometimes we don't ask at all. And sometimes we ask wrongly. James, Jesus' brother, puts it like this in his letter. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. But Paul encourages us here because he says, continuing here, verse 26, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us, makes petitions for us. The Spirit is praying for us. And don't you know that too? 
that God sometimes seems to answer the prayer you didn't get to pray, that you didn't think to pray. While you don't always know what to pray, God does. And he's praying for you right now. And that should have some practical, practical sort of benefits for our prayer life. Because rather than stifling your prayer life, that reality that God prays what you really need to be praying for and what you didn't get around to praying for and you didn't think to pray for, or maybe you didn't want to pray for, this should be fuel for us. It should help us to pray more, feeling free of the needs to sort of put everything in the right words every time. To be able to pray honestly, to just make it simple and honest, knowing that he prays the better prayer for you anyway. He prays with groaning, signs too deep for words. The words it, it, too deep for words, it's inexpressible in words. That you couldn't, words wouldn't do justice to the feelings, to the emotions behind them. The spirit groans for us while we groan. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to God's will. There's this wonderful union within the Trinity of Father, Spirit, and Son so that the Spirit does always pray the right thing for us. We don't always pray according to God's will, of course. We pray for wrong things, pray for good things for wrong reasons, pray for good things that just simply aren't the best thing, for us. So the hope to persevere through suffering, despite moments of groaning as we await his glory, is that the Holy Spirit carries us through, that God knows your groans, he hears, he listens, he understands, but he joins you and he stacks the deck for you. The Spirit prays the prayer you need to pray. It's short-term pain for long-term gain. We're playing with a stacked deck. We need to know the end from the beginning. Look at verses 28 to 30 there with me. How can we be confident that we will persevere through suffering and make it to glory at the end? Well, those who make it to the end tackle the moment ahead of them by fixing their eyes on the hope at the end. Think of the marshmallow test one last time. Those who succeed at the marshmallow test showed a very similar viewpoint on their task. They tackled the moment they were in by thinking about the reward at the end. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, God works in all things. And maybe that's the word to circle or to underline in your Bible. God works in all things, even hard things, even sad things, even bad things, even things we would not choose for our good. Even the very things that cause us to groan, from verse 23, and that even a part of the Spirit's groaning in verse 26, God is using for our good. But so what what is his good that he's working things towards? What is his purpose that we're called according to? What is he working towards? Look at verse 29. To be conformed to the image of his son. To be molded into the same form 
as his son. His good purpose, even in bad things, is to make you more like Jesus. It's not your comfort, it's not your pleasure, it's not your entertainment, and you'll know that. But his purpose is to make you fully human, to look that bit more like Jesus. That's how things that feel bad can be good. And why now we get this glorious ending, these couple of verses here from Paul giving us this encouragement and confidence and hope. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice how all of that as well is in the past tense. Because for Paul, it is that certain. It's, it's, it's already done, though we're still living it out and seeing it unfold before us. Paul has it here in past tense. He has done this. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. He's chosen you, knowing everything about you. Before you could even try to earn it and fail, he's chosen you because he loves you. Because. Not because of any particular characteristic or quality or achievement. He loves you because. In order that he, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. He's done it to create a family. And the idea, in fancy sort of words, that Paul is getting across here in these verses is the idea of the perseverance of the saints. We hear Jesus speak on these lines. Here's just two places in which he does it from John's Gospel. John chapter 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never cast out. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. That those that he reveals himself to, that the Father has given him, do not fall away because they are kept by him. As Jesus is coming towards his death, as he's praying on the evening before, John chapter 17, he says, keep them in your name which you've given me. He's praying that the Father would continue to keep us, that we would be able to persevere. And then he follows it up by saying, while I was with them, I kept them. While he was there and walking with them, it was Jesus who was keeping them. And now that he's departing, at least physically, he's asking, Father, you continue to keep them. The perseverance of the saints. John Calvin explains it like this. He says, God, therefore, begins a good work in us by exciting in our hearts desire, a love, and a study of righteousness, by turning, training, and guiding our hearts unto righteousness. And he completes his good work by confirming us unto perseverance. He never fails. Those whom he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. Those he loves enough to choose, he won't abandon. If he's loved you enough to have chosen you, to have called you, to have come after you, to have won your heart, to die for you, he'll see you home to glory. So you can live this day looking to the glory that is certain to come, even if you cannot see it yet. This is the theme of all of those great heroes and heroines of the faith. You can read about it in Hebrews 11. They all have this same mindset, that firstly they look forward to a future uh, 
in their moment of triumph. In the moment that they triumph and they do something really faithful, they're actually looking to something beyond what they're doing. Abraham, as he is obedient to God's call to sacrifice Isaac, isn't thinking about that moment. He's thinking about all the promises that are wrapped up in Isaac into the future, where it tells us that he reckoned one way or other Isaac wasn't dying that day. One way or other. Because all of his promises are wrapped up in it. He's looking to the future. And they all died not receiving what they were hoping in. Hebrews 11 verse 13, all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. They were looking to future glory in all of those moments. And yet this said, even the strongest amongst us sometimes need a friend who can coach us to victory. Muhammad Ali, who was Cassius Clay, or most often simply known as the greatest, in his first world championship fight against Sonny Liston in 1964, four rounds into the fight, his trainer, Angelo Dundee, says he wanted to quit. He had lost his vision, uh, either through some rubbing alcohol on Liston's shoulder or perhaps some medicine from one of his cuts uh, on his face. And he was convinced that this had been intentional sort of cheating and wanted to prove it. He said to Dundee, cut the gloves off. He wanted to end the fight and tell everyone just what had happened. In that moment, young Cassius Clay needed his faithful trainer who stopped him in his tracks and said, sit down. You can't fight without gloves. This is for the title. In a moment of groaning, Even the greatest needed the wisdom of a friend, of a coach, to keep going. Two rounds later, his vision returned, and by the end of that round, Liston had quit himself. In a moment of groaning, we need to remind ourselves of the glorious end to come, that God is working that out in all things even hard things, even sad things, even bad things, even things we would not choose ourselves. There's short-term pain for long-term gain. There may be groanings now, but there's glory to come. We're playing with a stacked deck. God has given us his spirit to help us along the way. But we need to know the end from the beginning. We need to keep sight of the end because it helps you tackle the moment and make it to that glorious return of Christ. Let's pray, and then we will uh, sing a closing song together.